It's pretty hard to go on Earth at this point in time to an environment with humans and not have rats involved in it. It becomes a political act just to say that humans are animals. I think there's a lot to be thought there about how we think ourselves different. Hi, my name is Benjamin Meaches. I'm an associate professor of global politics at the University of Washington, Tacoma. I'm here today to talk about my work, which just got published with the University of Minnesota Press, Non-Human Humanitarians, Animal Interventions in Global Politics. The book is an exploration of three different non-human animals, dogs, rats, goats, and cows, that are integrated in a variety of ways into humanitarian practices whether that's demining and explosive identification, infectious disease management, and agricultural and food support to people in famine, and tries to unpack how humanitarians who emphasize so strongly human rights, the problem of addressing suffering in the world, and the necessity of compassion, negotiate their relationships with non-human animals that they bring along with them to complete certain kinds of tasks. And one of the things that the book helps to show is that there's actually quite a lot of complexity baked into this relationship, both about our assumptions around what it means to be human or what it means to be a political actor, but then also some surprising ways that non-human animals not only make humanitarian practice different and often more responsive to conditions of human suffering, but often expand its scope in interesting ways to tackle questions about non-human welfare and non-human life and the ecological crises that are kind of affecting our planet. With me today is my good friend and interlocutor, Stephanie Fischel. Hi, I'm Stephanie Fischel. I'm a lecturer at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. I'm really uh, happy to be here talking with Ben about his book. This was born from a lot of conversations and a lot of interest in the more than human and the non-human. I too have thought a lot about this. I have a book with Minnesota from 2017 called The Microbial State, Global Thriving and the Body Politic, of which I know Ben was a part of the naming of that because there was a lot of existential crises about what it should be called. We've kind of been in and out of each other's work for a while. I also published in The Long 2020, which was a piece that Minnesota put out around the first COVID lockdown year with notions of what our viral subjectivity does to freedom and agency and how it complicates that. So long-term interest in thinking about how we see ourselves as human. And this book really opened up some amazing ethical ways to think about being human in terms of how we interact with our non-human brothers and sisters that we pull along with us in our human escapades. On that note, I thought I would pick out some quotes, and I've sent these to Ben beforehand to have some thinking around them, just because I think there are some really both beautiful pieces of prose that Ben has pulled out of some really complex theoretical interventions into a lot of interdisciplinary spaces that also doesn't forget to care. Sometimes we see theoretical interventions around the different ways in which non-humans get used tends to be really pragmatic or the next new cool thing to talk about quantum or to talk about bacteria. I don't know, Ben, maybe we could just start off with thinking about how you got pulled into this. Yeah, if you journeyed back like five or 10 years, I would never have anticipated that this would be a part of my scholarship or repertoire. I'm not per se trained initially in animal studies, which is itself a kind of rich multidisciplinary field. 
I actually started to think about this in the context of a piece that came out in Security Dialogue in 2015 called The Political Ecology of the Camp, which was an effort to examine concentration camps and their emergence by attending to the different material actors and conditions rather than just human narratives and human emphasis on exclusion that's kind of in the Arendtian or Agambanian tradition. And that required kind of looking and thinking about how camps were built and where they were assembled and what the pressures were surrounding them and a lot of the different kind of actants in Bruno Latour's sense that surrounded it. Out of that project, I sort of started thinking about not just concentration camps, but actually humanitarian camps. So in 2019, I published another piece that also bears the title Non-Human Humanitarians with Review of International Studies. And there I tried to look at how different kinds of humanitarian compounds and humanitarian spaces sort of generally understood incorporated non-human actants. That piece looked briefly at demining dogs or explosive identification dogs, like the book does. And then it also addressed things like drones that had been appropriated or developed for humanitarian purposes and materials that surround the construction of camps, diagrams that are used from them. And so I was already kind of plugged in there to thinking about what and how is human agency produced or mediated or changed or redirected by all of these different kinds of non-human things. In that process, I started thinking quite actively about non-human animals for several reasons. Unlike some of the obviously non-living things that surround those pieces, there's a wealth of both centrist political debates about questions around animal rights and animal welfare. And then there's actually a lot of fascinating and curious biological and biocultural sociological work that's been done around non-human animals. And so I just started to kind of ask questions about like, where do non-human animals appear in humanitarian practices? And I think the thing that most anchored me in this work is that there's this fascinating tension as I see it in humanitarianism that it's so grounded in the notion of human welfare, human compassion, human reason as the key features that should help us guide and orient our ethical dispositions and our politics, but also explain sort of who we are and what being a good person would involve, and also are in some ways supposed to be antidotes to other more exclusionary and more violent forms of politics like nationalism, for instance, right? Or the very classical image of biological racism, although we obviously know that there's more complex models we need there, for instance. And yet it seemed to me that there was a a strong critical tradition alongside, you know, humanitarianism building its principles out and kind of its different practices and agendas that was always calling into question, well, who is humanitarianism defined against? And that various human groups, for reasons that have to do with gender, race, class, coloniality, have been at times identified as inhuman, subhuman, etc. And that that was a component of the discourse. One thing that was fascinating about reading humanitarian work in response to non-human animals is that these are, in some sense, agents that cannot in any way materially make claims in the same sense or don't represent the same model of subject, if we're talking in the rights-bearing language, as any kind of human group. And so it's a different way of kind of exploring the boundaries surrounding the concept of the human at work in humanitarianism. And the more that I read about it, I found really divergent approaches amongst different humanitarian organizations, depending on the non-humans that they were connected and working with, depending on the political context that they were responding to, 
Often that involved normalizing things like the very formal exploitation of animals for things like milk or for the production of meat, animal slaughter. And other times it involved the kinds of companionship and kinship that are often you know, exhibited towards animals like dogs in the context of places like emotional support animals or service animals. And other times there were kind of complete oddities. And so, in an interesting case, it also had kind of like a cabinet of curiosities effect, just things being surprising and different than I think you might expect. And as a result of that, I spend a lot of time thinking about how humanitarianism involved and complicated itself in relationship to these different non-human animals. I think it's a cool sideways way into looking at more broadly at animal rights thinking and animal rights literature. Or if you write on the non-human and the more than human. I found teaching and I've done quite a bit of work, I think, since moving to Australia in multi-species justice space and trying to think about the ways in which we actually think about the non-human and the more than human and the systems in our politics. How would we do this, especially in really anthropocentric ways? And one of the things I think that comes up is that people feel really threatened. It becomes a political act just to say um, that humans are animals or that we would be a human animal and a more than human animal. And it becomes political in a lot of ways that you have to be aware of. And that brings a big piece of what you're doing here. And one of the quotes I pulled out that I think is really productive for our thinking is you write and ask the question about what is so threatening about the possibility that non-human animals practice humanitarianism. This is a big piece of your argument. And that they create ethical relations to others characterized by care, generosity, or joy. Let's unpack this, as we theorists say, because I think there's a lot in there about the dogs, the goats, the rats, the cows, about their life worlds and the way in which they might interact with ours through different ways. And is that really less important than kind of these high politics or ways of understanding it through human frameworks? Yeah, I think that this was a really interesting problem to see recur across the writing and engagement with the different non-humans. And something that I found really consistent, it's pretty difficult to not demarcate other species as somehow different in some way. Like species difference versus anthropocentric difference, something along those lines captures a lot of the way that we frame all of those kind of normative and political and ethical questions and issues. And in each context, there's a bit of a reticence to sort of fully embrace some of the oddity and weirdness that comes with seeing something like a dog or a rat or a goat as practicing a form of humanitarianism and as a more full-throated agent there. Um, the two things that we tend to do is either see their actions as subordinate to the intentions of the humans who either train them or teach them how to carry out some type of action, or as not really an, a form of ethics, just behavior as opposed to action, that is not worth any kind of redress. And so there's sort of a couple of intellectual moves we use to deflect it, right? We locate the agency elsewhere and just see the animals as mere instrument, what in the book I call anthropocentric reason, or we sort of deflate their ethical capacities altogether, emotional capacities, etc. And those are not novel arguments by any means in you know animal studies literature. There's lots of other folks who have explored these questions quite richly and tried to develop all kinds of models for animal welfare and animal rights that have pointed out to questions of sentience and capacity and you know social world building and all these other features, you know, capacities of mind, etc., of complex mammals and, and certainly other animals as well. Point is that I think there is something even a little bit unique 
to the humanitarian reluctance to kind of fully delve into some of that relationship, partly because it is in the the kind of self-identity of humanitarians to emphasize humanness and the status of human life as being worthy of special safeguard and protection. And so there's some interesting things where if we look through all the different criteria through which we might differentiate or think the difference between humans and non-human animals, we end up in kind of a thorny place where, you know, we might say it's an emotional differences and that's not quite it, right? We might say there's phenomenological differences and how we interpret and sense the world around us, but that doesn't really exhaust a meaningful political or ethical distinction just because we have those things, right? There's all kinds of problems even within the human community around ableism, right? That would emerge mature from that kind of mode of engagement. But what there is, is a need to kind of persistently insist on a difference to make the ethical goals of humanitarianism sacrosanct. And so there's this kind of constant searching for what the difference is there that I think is an interesting episode. I mean, the book begins with this brief piece from Emmanuel Levinas, which has been picked up by a couple of other folks in animal studies, especially Derrida, who talks about this quite extensively, although I don't know that Derrida would be understood as an animal studies person exactly so much as, you know, philosopher. But the question of this dog, Bobby, who shows up in the concentration camps with them, and Levinas calls the dog the last Kantian there. And he does so to both kind of note that the dog is charitably interacting with these people who are in a situation of extreme you know, violence and deprivation. But he's also sort of mocking the dog at the same time for not really having the brains or the capacities to engage in ethical reflection. And I think that that duality exists in a lot of humanitarian circles where there's sort of a wanting to see the demining dog and pet it and present it in pictures and imagery and see it as something that is a companion and yet also a double move that subtracts from it the more full sense of political and ethical possibility. And yet, if you go out into a place like a demining field, what you see is that dogs have a significant affective effect on the way in which people interact, the way that demining occurs. I kind of want to both promote, on the one hand, then strengthen and give greater breadth and depth to the idea of animal capacities and interactions um, with humans and with the kind of political or ecological context they're in, and also want us to maybe unsettle a little bit how much we, in humanitarian discussions anyways, prioritize and privilege the kind of cognizance and sentience and capacity of humans, right? I'm not really sure at the end of the day if there's a firm distinction between action and behavior, and that really unsettles some of the basic principles that humanitarian organizations are working on. So I think that's a piece of why there's sort of a germane, maybe it's not threatening so much as unsettling that that's involved there. Like reading it for me, I know thinking about the dogs and the rats, the pictures you have for those who can pick up the book and take a look, there are pictures of the rats that are used in these particular activities. Frankly, from like my squeeb point of view, like the cuteness level, the, the pictures just kill you, right? It's like this beautiful, and it's got this little teeny tiny gold medal they're being held on these tiny leashes. And I think part of what that shows too is you spend a lot of time on the history of rats being in this strange place for us as well. That the rat fills a different space than the dog. The piece of this book I think that adds a lot to it is the choice of which non-human humanitarians also makes a difference in which the way they are promoted and or understood by the very organizations that do it. So what was it like working with the people who do these activities? Did you have much contact beyond just researching? 
this is not a book that's based off sort of like field research out in it and direct anthropology and interaction with people. There's no sort of ethnography aspect of it per se. So most of what I ended up working with was historical materials, textual materials. I did have contact with some people at different organizations or in the case of Heifer and the Heifer Project, which is organized by the Church of the Brethren or Apopo, which is the organization that does different kinds of work with the rats um, globally and kind of promotes hero rats as a signature model of humanitarianism. The thing that I think was interesting, though, in picking up on your comment is that there is a really fascinating difference amongst the different species and animals that we're talking about, but all of them are pretty extensively interwoven into human evolution in certain ways and have co-evolved relations to some extent, right? So like dogs are the ones that often get the most attention for this because it feels like the, you know, you and your dog genre is itself a, a model of, you know, science writing and popular attention where it's like, you know, you should understand that when your dog looks at you, it looks at this side of your face versus that side. And like, there is some strong elements in there, but there's a lot of duality even in the case of dogs. We know, for instance, that dog interactions with humans have been used to create the barriers surrounding slave plant and solidify and reify white supremacy in different ways. We know that when dogs are not treated well, that that often becomes a mode of commentary on the human communities that surround them. So I think like there's some interesting cutting both ways amongst these ethical norms. And this is, I think, from, from your work, sort of fascinating, right? Like you, you think about viruses and microbes, which are much more extensively involved in certain way in making up and constituting human biology and capacity and horizons and all these things. And we have very little language to render any of that agency intelligible, right? Even though it's extensively impactful in our, what's the Donna Haraway term for it? Symbiogenesis. Is that her? Or is that- I think from Lynn Margolis, right? Like from this kind of symbio, yeah. She plays with that a lot. You find that with rats too, right? It's pretty hard to go on Earth at this point in time to an environment with humans and not have rats involved in it because either our modes of social production and agriculture have become sort of extensive and globalized and rats can feed on that. But then there's also, you know, the domestication of sort of fancy rats as pets too. So there's kinship that's developed in the, at least in the past couple centuries, much more extensively in the pet industry, which is in some ways abruptly changes. You know, I was talking about the kind of relations with dogs. I remember my grandmother who passed away right at the beginning of the COVID epidemic being reviled at the notion that a dog would be in somebody's house. So I think there's even generational gaps within relatively narrow communities about the dirtiness and cleanliness and the way we interact with all of these things. But one of the things that's most striking is, you know, it's arguable that goats are some of the longest domesticated and co-evolved creatures with us. And we often wouldn't think about them as having the same kind of emotional and affective valences with us in the same way that they might resist pieces of that. In each one of these cases, I think quite a lot to unpack in terms of the ambiguity of the relations that the species form with one another. And then obviously, we don't want to talk just as somebody thinks a lot about assemblages in terms of species writ large, but individuals and communities and the way that all of those things interact. And so I find it hard analytically to want to start off with a series of strong generalizations about any of this. And that's maybe part of where my initial suspicion around where humanitarianism might receive animals to is sort of an interesting starting point question. And as you were talking, I started thinking about the co-evolutionary piece of it and bringing in the goats was interesting. I didn't, I didn't really think again, like there's a silence for me. I didn't think about the goats being around kind of just as long, but that these three species are also very much a part of and tangled up with the way humans have lived on the planet and are part of a co-evolutionary experience. We are humans thanks to dogs and dogs are humans kind of thanks to us through this long-term relationship of changing each other. 
always interesting to note that dogs will follow a pointing finger, right? I was just taking care of my friend's Australian Shepherd and, and I'll say like, Hugo, pick that up. And if I point to it, he'll look. And apparently no other species reacts to us that way. They'll be like, "What? we don't understand what you're doing. Even our closer on the evolutionary scale. So I do think there's something interesting about the ways in which we come to this always already part of a community that co-evolved. In some ways, especially with the goats and cows, I think this brings up a lot of conversations we'd had about, you know, meat eating and non-human animal destruction, kind of under the way in which we slaughter them, the ethics around eating meat. We've talked a lot about, can you be an ethical meat eater, right? At some level, you lean a little on um, Coetzee's looking at the ways in which the thoughtlessness and the unbreachableness of looking at how many animal deaths support us. And I think there's a part too where you talk about there are no words to adequately communicate thanks for the gifts of rats, literally. Our ways of knowledge, and since I work at the microbial and viral a lot in a theoretical level, I think so many of our ways of understanding are based on metaphors of sight and seeing. And in many cases, we'll never see them, right? We have to understand the virome and the virus as an absolutely crucial part of our existence on the planet, but we will never sense it. The work that you did on, I'll say this a little flippantly, but like making visible the, the sniffing portion of it, right? The sensing that there's actually a lot of communication happening. And that part of, if we come back to this animal rights discourse, which I think you did really nicely, is talk about how the way communication works in here. You talk about meta communication and, and nonchalance, the way we see it. I think that's a really powerful piece of it for a very complex issue. There's sort of three or four different angles in response that I feel like are useful to kind of flesh out some of the aims or ambitions of the book. I wanted to, one, mark this as a practice where I see humanitarianism as engaging in and extending a particularly pernicious form of anthropocentric violence in certain cases. And there's both that in the sense of exposing dogs to certain regimes of training and danger which are obviously safeguarded to the best of ability and there are robust standards, but there's still, in a certain sense, the potential exposure of something to a, a human-planted violence solely for the benefit of helping other humans to thrive. Like there's an ecology growing around landmines, for instance, but it's not a human ecology and it doesn't help us. And it's not that that doesn't involve some kind of risk transfer to the dog that would also put a human in place or that we shouldn't be able to redress landmines, but I wanted to pull out that. And that's much more extensive when you go to something like providing goats or cows for the purposes of milting purposes, but also then training people in animal slaughter, in which what is supposed to be a, a caring act, although sometimes it rehearses a lot of the kind of colonial development discourses that have been so widely criticized when you want to teach somebody animal farming to effectively develop them and make them a part of some kind of global citizenry. There's something strange about the anthropocentrism as the means through which we do that. But then you're directly in conversation with acts of killing, which are antithetical to most models of humanitarian principles. And so you really have to double down on the fact that there is a strong human-non-human difference to not run into some kind of tension there. And the very same organizations are at times also then promoting some of the cute photos that you started with, right? Where it's like, here's the cute infant picture of a, a baby cow with a human. And then several pages later, it's and here's how you slaughter the cow for food, right? And we could get into an extensive normative conversation around ethics and meat eating like you described there. But I don't know that I want to track that down per se so much as first and foremost, note the depth to which the fact that that doesn't even appear sometimes as an ethical quandary or question in the first place is an issue. It sort of shows the hegemony, if you will, of the anthropocentrism that embeds a lot of these practices. 
you asked me earlier about how I got interested in this. I, my first book, The Politics of Annihilation, The Genealogy of Genocide, which is also with Minnesota, traced a variety of different sort of minor discourses surrounding genocide, one of which is also about the treatment of non-human animals, which is a, another kind of background tie-in here where that's been used by a variety of not animal rights or animal welfare activists to also kind of call attention to this violence element. I wanted to pull that out here because I think it's present in each case. The second point that I wanted to make, though, in response is I also see something novel in some of these humanitarian organizations' efforts that I think is also worth noting and reprising and trying to figure out what value it should have and how it came into being. Because there are some interesting questions being asked about, like, how do you take a militaristic practice, which is where demining dog efforts came from, and incorporate it and make it something that could be opposed to violence and opposed to the ontological messiness of war in which, you know, what we think of as a war that begins and ends on said date actually affects generations later on, right? And is entangled in this sort of deep sense. I think it's fascinating that, you know, when Apopo starts working with the rats, there's this question about like, well, what kind of sociality can we build? How would we do that? That there's innovation. And one of the things that's another touchstone between our works is like the rats are sniffing malaria successfully in trials, for instance, to help with disease spread. And they're effectively communicating with a world of microbial interactions at an intensity or a degree of depth that humans can do some of that too, but is sort of astonishing for us. And so it requires some sort of shift in understanding the kinds of encounters and communications that are occurring, I think, to get to that place. And even in the context of an organization that, you know, supports, and, and Heifer International does this, but it's certainly not the only one at this point, that sends animals for the purposes of milk production and meat production, even that organization is interestingly founded on a principle of earth first and think about the welfare of the earth as part of its framing. And so there's like an environmental ethos that's involved that you won't find if you go to some of the other large scale humanitarian organizations, because it's just not part of the series of challenges that they've taken up in this work. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that all of it is productive ecologically or productive for the non-human animals that are involved, but there are moments in it where it's reaching in different kinds of directions. And I kind of want to seize on that creativity. And the third thing I was going to say is you pulled out this communication piece. I feel like as a theorist, I, I was always kind of very scared of behavioral models of the world. And like, what does it mean to see somebody as subject to, to some kind of behaviorism? You know, like you learn kind of, you know, the horror stories of B.F. Skinner and all of that, right? Right. The 20th century was, we've come through it smarter and better. Yes. <laughs> it seems like the first principle of thinking behaviorally is that all behavior is communication, that it's performative at some level, right? It's signaling, and it's signaling in more complex ways than the intentions of the agent that's involved in. And that means that there's also a strong communicative aspect to behaviorism, and it requires both in the way that we apply it to non-human animals most of the time, it requires like this firmness. In fact, there's like all these sort of ethical discussions about how to train animals, both problematically and constructively. In its best practice, it's observational. What are the interactions doing? How do they change? What does something that I may not suggest is signifying something A signifying B actually indicate? And so I think there's a lot of richness and complexity in that that hasn't really been fully explored or unpacked. And the end of the book tries to like go back and revisit some of these signature moments. Like, what does it mean if the dog is experiencing joy in the process of demining? How is it that if a rat is coming for food and you have to slowly coax it into the process, it's controlling or contributing to communication around the conditions under which landmine demining can occur? Because that's something that the rats also excel at. What does it mean if a kid is 
refusing to obey the expectations of a genre that we want to like see it dance around a farmyard, you know, which is what the fourth chapter of the book opens with is this goat that's supposed to have a camera on its head to show how kind of fun and joyful their life is. And it's not really doing anything that humans can fully appreciate in those terms. And in doing so, you know, kind of changing some of the conditions surrounding how we receive and visualize and all of this. And I, I think that our pluralism has been based largely on human to human models on the assumption that there is some kind of communicative similarity there that needs a whole world of more depth theoretically to get to a non-human pluralism and inhabit even that there's you know other things happening than formal language and reference and discussion and concepts that are happening there's probably biologists who are like, of course, we've known that for a really long time, right? Like, there's a reason beehives are so successful, and it depends on something that's not the model that we're used to. But sometimes, as, as you have well pointed out in your own work, uh, our political images lag behind the complexity of the worlds we're embedded in. Or we need the complexity that you bring to be able to put a, a bit of a finer point on how a science or medicine might see it. I mean, a reliance on particular science worldview sometimes I find perplexing, especially if you listen to scientists asked about their work and you think maybe every scientific team needs a someone from the humanities buried inside it to, to push them. What is it that the one I, I thought of you actually, Ben, when I read this, it was that um, they looked at Mars and all the life on Mars and how it had been there but gone. And that one of the scientists said it's almost as if that life being born there was then responsible for its own demise. Do you need a philosopher right now to like say to you, what is it about the conditions of life that bring with it its own demise? It's more than just the ways in which microbes create a new kind of microenvironments that then might not be sustainable to other sorts, but actually a deeper philosophical idea of how life works and how life works sometimes against itself. That's very much in line, too, with the questions of multi-species justice you were raising. I mean, like, I don't think, and maybe it's my Nietzscheanism, that a form of life is going to try to modify its surroundings based off whatever force of interpretation is guiding it, right? And I'm not sure that that's its perspective all the time. It could be other forces that are having that, right? It would probably be a sign of kind of passive nihilism to say we should condemn it for its part, right, for, for wanting to do that. I just think that the second question, right, that follows that is how do you build coexistingly? We've pretty much missed the boat on that, you know, maybe because of the, you know, success of the state model and capitalism and, you know, all of the different forces that are really productive, you know, in a biopolitical sense at making more of a certain kind of life and not so thoughtful about all the rest of it. That would also imply that moving past that force of interpretation or that you know, point of perspective or however you want to frame it would be kind of the next step towards making a better politics, making a better, a better, a different, a different, I don't really know what it is. The reason I think I attached on to thinking about the play was that's one of the things we don't think about, like the role of imagination and play and creativity. We often see politics as being something in a separate sphere, whereas if you, you know, follow certain traditions and, you know, our Western training, like, you know, Deleuze and uh, Elizabeth Groves wrote that amazing book on chaos territory art, saying that, like, basically, art is the only thing that will create change. It's not policy. It's not politics as we would see it. It's this imaginative ways of thinking yourself out of the problem. I used Feyerabend in my book to kind of connect some dots saying, how do we imagine ourselves somewhere different? And we don't necessarily have to go far when you read your book about the ways in which play is incorporated into these very important work around mitigating certain kinds of violences. I think there's a lot to be thought there about how we think ourselves different. Yeah. 
it's funny, whenever you're writing a book and my, my limited experience, there's these moments where you have personal contact with some of the things that you're writing about or questions you're asking in ways that are unexpected. So like I was in the midst of writing one piece of this when I was out jogging and I got attacked by a 150 pound dog and uh, it jumped up and bit my arm and I have puncture wounds that scarred over there and I've lost nerve sensation in the midst of this. And it was, it was just, you know, doing what the dogs do in that context. It had been off leash in its owner's yard. You know, there's a lot of ways that we could talk about something like that, right? To, you know, condemn the non-human animal or the, the human owner that surrounds that or the person that's with it, whatever the languages you want to kind of grasp their relationship with, or the odd partitioning of human space and fencing that contributes to changes in the way that dog sociality would otherwise work, or people jogging on streets, I'm not, not whatever different modes of sociality there. But it led to this interesting question for me, which is, what's my relationship with this animal that's bitten me and that had this adversarial relationship? And like, how would I go? about working on and teasing that out and like is play a means of interacting with it and like that sounds like i'd go back and play with the dog that bit me which is not what happened but it led to all of these interesting questions about you know how defense and engagement would need to be encouraged and what, what ended up happening in that scenario is i ended up walking home i was bleeding from this dog bite and the owner had kind of corralled the dog in something and she offered to you know pay whatever medical expense it was it was really pleasant but she was like shocked that I wasn't angry at her and her dog initially. And I could have been really injured by this dog. I mean, it could have, it was a, a very, very large animal, but it led to a different kind of back and forth for her. Where I was like, oh, no, you know, I, we also have dogs in my house as our companion animals. And like, I can see how this could occur. And there was a back and forth interaction between her and I, and I learned a little bit about the dog. And it was a fascinating moment because it unsettled what were clearly her and I expectations about how this scenario might go. Just because the question was kind of in my mind about like, what am I doing here? What are the relations that are involved? And so I really do think there's kind of like a value in just posing those questions. Again, it's hard to extrapolate from an exa anecdotal example, but it kind of changed the tenor and the peacefulness to some extent of the way that all of that ended up getting handled and mutual engagement. And I really believe powerfully in like those moments where the insight slightly changes or the visibility or the mode slightly changes, you know, the, the distribution of the sensible or partition of the sensible, to use Ron Sierra's phrase, even at very sort of micro moments. Yeah. And sometimes if we can channel it into what we do, I think in your book, you've got a really interesting bit then about like biting as play and the way I encourage everyone to read it, because there's these really kind of really unpacked moments of how we might see dogs and their play and what the bite means in different contexts in ways we might see talking about human play. And I think that those moments that push us into a different space are important. I know one of my pieces that I wrote in much different form that came out about movement and the kind of ethics of movement in the, the more than human in a journal for mobilities and sociology, but part of it was prompted by hitting a deer in my car. And it was a moment of, like, for those who have had an animal auto collision, as they call them, um, they're quite shocking. It was interesting in my head at the time, I thought I'm being hit by the deer. I actually didn't hit the deer. The deer hit me along the side. And that became this weird thing that I ended up fixating on. And when I went to call the um, insurance, the conversation that I had was, oh, we won't pay for that. But if you had hit a human, we would. And I remember in a similar way, kind of that moment, you're talking about the changing, I, I slipped into this notion of whose deaths matter, right? It was a really early way of me thinking through who's left by the side of the road dead, and who counts what could have been a very what I wanted to be a more gendered element of who counts and 
you know, racialized accounts of all kinds of things in, in around colonialism and all of that. Of course, we go broad when we're trained the way Ben and I are trained and internationally. So we always start at the global kind of and work our way in. But I think that there are moments of clarity that lots of people have, regardless of whether they can write about it in a book or not. And these are really good moments to, to talk about. Yeah, I, I would also say on the, the play model, right? Like just one other thought that popped in my head. There's a human discourse on what constitutes play. And then there are probably forms of play that just don't have anything to do with that. You know, it's funny to me, it's like goats are an animal we don't think about as playing, but kidding and kids and their rascaliness comes from a sort of kind of goat resistance, probably to human domestication and efforts. It's another moment that's here. We get some of our vegetables from a local farm. The farmer is actually a PhD in phenomenology, I think. So, you know, it's nice to have a farmer that's thinking about these questions as well. They have one goat who kind of refuses to engage in the mode of the the petting goat, right? Or like the zoo animal goat very clearly and watching expectations of people that will go there and like the goat doesn't behave in the playful way that it's supposed to, but it's still enjoying itself in various ways that you can kind of think if you watch it and engage it, but it's not participating with you. So like, you know, the idea that you have to be open to playfulness that exceeds what you might be because of your mode of embodiment and, you know, your kind of experience and everything piece of two, I think is also there in the background to some extent, right? Like play is, if it's going to be ecological, it's got to be a lot more than just however humans interpret and perceive it or even enjoy it to some extent. Or not excused as kind of a behavior you hear a lot like, oh, well, they're playing to prepare to be violent. They're training themselves to kill. And you're like, really? Like, all right. It seems like you went pretty far with that, but okay. Like that seems to be the around, especially around cat and dog play. That's that thing, fatal pragmatism, right? Where it, it reduces all excess to some, you know, teleological utility or endpoint. And I mean, a lot of the play stuff here is in the background, kind of Brian Masumi's book, uh, Red Animal Titos about politics, which I engage with pretty significantly. And then some of the work that's been done on trying to think about the role of, you know, non-human animals in democratic structures, right? Whether that's kind of Kaimlika and Sue Donaldson's model, right? That's probably the most popularized of that as far as I think about it now. But, you know, that there's a lot in there that is politics that just is totally missed basically non-human interactions with humans, but also with one another. That's also why I think that the question of how do the non-humans change our view of what humanitarian processes are up to is so thorough in the book, right? Like the point about demining dogs that I make is that it's not only that they're really good at finding mines or explosives, but the reasons that they're so functional in, in explosive ecologies, the reason they're so successful is because it's an entirely different life world or death world environment for them. We're sort of just tapping into that whole series of interactions, some of which are very obviously playful and game-like at times, even if they're not always games that incorporate humans. And I think that, you know, if you read a very functionalist literature about explosive dog demining or dog bomb detection, it's very like, well, dogs do well with atmospheric dispersion at this level and triggering mechanisms like this and the, you know, the wind and rain pressure and the volume and temperatures change this, that and the other. And you have to be careful about other non-humans that they encounter. And those are all kind of important, but maybe in like a Spinozan sense, there's also something else going on in their joy and interaction. And that opens up a little bit of a different way of thinking about the sort of tragedy of explosives that are embedded in the ground, right? Which are almost always a product of some kind of great power war or colonial warfare or hegemonic or local armed conflict of some kind that impact non-combatants extensively for generations later. But there's some differences in the dispositions that come out from just that model of interaction that are pretty significant, I think. There's a way in which they change the understanding of the sets of problems that are also being encountered, I think. 
wouldn't we be remiss if we didn't talk about the orcas? Who knows, it might be the beginning of a larger orca movement, but at this point, it's interesting watching how these sorts of things run through say, social media and such around orca agency around boats. And I have a friend who's working on a cross-stitch that's become ungovernable, right, with an orca. And I know you're into bird strikes and airplanes, these things around agency and how it works. What do you think of the orcas? I should clarify here that in, in the Pacific Northwest where I'm, I'm from, and I'm actually speaking right from historically Puyallup lands, um, where the like local conversation has been really interesting in that regard. The most recent touchstone that I saw that got a lot of press was actually, uh, I think it was a chef that was talking about salmon and the absence of being able to find, I can't remember which type of salmon it is off the top of my head that the orcas also eat. And like being involved in the production of human joy in relationship to the death of these two other species, right? And sort of like killing off an entire ecosystem through what we put on the plate, which is not an atypical trope, the way that kind of questions of ecology get put together and try to center human power, but in a way that makes people thoughtful about their choices, right? Sort of like the economy is the how we manage our enjoyment. And you can make choices as an individual agent there, uh, although that's often kind of a moralizing discourse. I guess from the purposes of this book and this work, I shied away from talking about non-human animals that were outside of the scope of humanitarianism. And I did so for two reasons. One is because I kind of envision the book as primarily about how humanitarianism has encountered this problem, right? So it's pitched at a narrower audience than some other modes of non-human animal or eco-criticism or whatever the genre is that this is actually a part of. The multidisciplinary conversation about interspecies affair and how they interact with one another. And then secondly, to sort of ask like, why isn't, and this might be my, my point of intervention, or I'm getting to it, like, why isn't the orca a humanitarian question? If humanitarianism anything, it's very focused on the social world and status of humans, and it hasn't always produced good outcomes on that basis so much as entrenched certain sets of power relationships and norms and you know that are gendered and sexed and racialized, etc., and that have promulgated at different historical moments, you know, anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity and other things like that. But it still seems like humanitarianism struggles to articulate and see itself in relationship to enfolding climate crises, which is not just climate change in the Anthropocene writ large, but species extinction, right? Which is one of the things that is really kind of at stake there in the background. And again, that's one of the pieces that's kind of fascinating about these organizations is they push a little bit more in that direction than other humanitarian groups go. But it would be a really hard thing to get to the point that like saving or considering intervention on behalf of or practicing as non-human would be a part of any kind of humanitarian practice. And that's kind of the, the contradiction or the paradox that I pull out the most, right? Um, and, you know, we're in a position where, from my understanding, and, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I'm not a climate scientist, but <laughs> we're, we're not in a good place with respect to the way that the future is unfolding for many human communities. We've known that for a long time, but that's also a lot of non-human communities that are obviously much more flagrantly affected. And it would be interesting with as many resources and considerations about the importance of suffering and attunement and mourning in some cases that are part of humanitarian efforts, if those could also be appropriated to this other set of struggles that are obviously interwoven to everything humanitarian organizations are already dealing with. And I think a better kind of group to think about would be, you know, elephants, African elephants. Like that's something where one could, I think one could conceivably imagine a, a non-humanitarian crisis there being, having to be responded to in similar ways. And there are strong resonances and tropes, right? Like the humanitarian subject is often positioned as suffering and vulnerable, and 
in need of development and aid and care and sort of the powerful to come in and, and control partisan. There's different iterations of that, right? There's some that are strongly white supremacist and colonial. There's some of it that's highly gendered, right? I'm thinking about like, you know, Chandra Mahanti under Western eyes, right? Like indicting feminism for its longstanding tradition about that, which is now what, 40 years ago, that critique was written or something like that. And that resonates with the things we say about non-human animals and children, right? Um, I think Lisa Malky's book on this, which is with Duke, is one of my favorite texts where it's like, there's a real powerlessness attributed to children and humanitarian subjects and animals that kind of make them resonate together. And I don't want to come across as if I think that buying into what might be called sentimentality around all those is the right political response. In fact, we kind of have to be careful a little bit of some of the emotions that come to that. But I agree with you that elephants, orcas fit into this framework then very neatly. Simply popping another thing, another species, another animal into the context, though, I, I don't know, kind of gets to the depth that's needed there to some extent. We've seen lots of efforts where there's sort of a one-off addition as opposed to the paradigmatic changes that are necessary. And it's always then, a, how do we accommodate this one thing, which, you know, we sort of never stop the machinations of power or economy or capital, whatever your framework is you want to, you know, art, articulate those things in, as long as we can sort of preserve some version of that. And I think that Tim Morton's work, Ecology Without Nature or Dark Ecology is a whole bunch of things that they've written. Um, I think is so powerful is that like, in some ways, that's the fantasy <laughs> that there's a still a nature out there that we can like preserve the one thing from and then the rest of it will somehow, you know, might decay, might go together, etc. And we need to kind of push past that. And I, I think that humanitarians that are wrestling with how they deal with non-human animals are at different points along that trajectory in thinking about their politics. And, you know, maybe the ones that have come over the most anthropocentric bias, which in my sense is actually the folks who work with the rats who really have thought through deeply some of these questions are opening up a lot of different issues. Like those, they're, they're now exploring, you know, can the rats be used in animal trafficking to support specific kinds of capture operations that would stop things like that, that are, you know, interesting experiments in multi-species justice. We keep kind of coming back to genres and, and ideas. And at the end of your book, where you're wrapping up some ideas, you talk about dogs that detect explosive, rats that track infectious disease, and goats that feed the world and nurture human kids are like a company of non-human animal heroes from a children's fiction, a genre that leans into the promise of a happy world without hierarchy, without losers, where care springs from encounters with difference. Predator and prey eventually play with one another. The leash speak their minds freely. And the disturbing ends up being the result of prejudiced habits rather than ontological scars. I think this is another piece of just the beautiful writing you put in it that although you're controlling one sort of affect, you're bringing another in, which I think is really productive. And I thought thinking it as I was reading, it, I thought, well, what genre would your book be if if we were to make this book into a movie? We spoke a little bit before about how like the cheekiness of it. So I'll give you some ideas and see what you think. I think you've got like a Coatsy inspired book called Nonchalance. A Cronenberg type horror, which would be called explosive ecology. And a, I think in the Lovecraft tradition, I th maybe it fits most here. And kind of like if we're looking at like the color pink, the, the one about pink coming and it's like for no reason destroying people, we could call that weird ecology. And then I'm not sure where to put this one. Maybe you can help me. I've, another one which would be great would be called Killing Silence. But I'm not sure who the director would do that. I feel like it's almost like a, a movie made by um, Ridley Scott, like Killing Silence would be a Ridley Scott. What do you think? Like, just if you wanted to think about where this was placed a bit, a bit more fun, what do you think? <laughs> you know, it's funny. 
I have a small addendum that was never included in this book where I was thinking about like, okay, so so where is there sort of like an interesting duality of humor and, you know, engagement that shows like playfulness, but is also sort of like sober about it at the same time as this? And I keep on coming back into my mind that it's sort of in the genre of the film Grizzly Man by Herzog, which I can't figure out a little bit. Like, is it a comedy that shows playfulness with animals that you're supposed to appreciate? Is it a horror show that's about like the murder and engagement and like the death of the surrounding environment? But then there's also like, I stare into the eyes of the bear and I don't see anything that's, you know, productive there. And there's these wounds and tragedies surrounding that. So there's like all these different pieces that are involved there. I could see any one of those. There's definitely a horror element creeping in here in a couple of different ways, right? There's the horror of the mind ecology or the explosive ecology and how that impacts creatures that ambulate in different ways and differently ambulating creatures. There's definitely, as you said, like a killing silence, like how has the problem of, of the exploitation here become more of an issue? I also think there's something slightly whimsical and enchanted about the articulation that there's you know, these fuzzy relations that can be ethically significant. I think that I actually cite David Shannon's Duck on a Bike at that particular moment, which is a children's book that everyone should have to read. I don't know. It's about a bunch of animals that cooperate to ride a bike. There's something in that, though, that is very much about envisioning, although it's anthropomorphic extensively, right, um, equity. And it's interesting that that gets framed through figures of non-human animals constantly, in which difference is foregrounded morphologically and genetically and biologically and socially and all the attributions there. And yet the lesson becomes clear. I'm thinking about Jack Halberstam's work in which childhood stories often have these kind of radical dimensions to them because like nobody wants their kids to like come away and be like, oh no, there are clear winners and losers and it's because of who they are. You can't kind of embrace that. So there's sort of these radical equity horizons that are involved in there. And I think that this is also the case. And yet we both have this like strong unsettling of relations and yet the structure of anthropocentrism never goes away in any of the moments that I explore. It's always still kind of knowing who's leading the animal and who's exposed to danger and who's not. I both kind of want to capture that creativity in play and also see that there's also this surrounding entrapment that occurs there. So I don't know what, I don't know what film genre that is. It's more Murakami than it is Disney. You undoubtedly heard my rant that there's this moment when Disney and moving in has become kind of radically more than human in many ways, and that most of the films are about how the non-human makes us more human. And this started out with Spirit and the Brother Bear, and it's kind of a club, uh, not too nuanced, but I do like the way in which children's stories do, as you're saying, like something about the magicalness of the planet, we are able to learn that through something other than our human experience and how important that is. Most of those are situated as some version of deep quasi-mystical encounter, right? It works its transcendent dimensions directly into the thing or promotes some essence from which that emerges, whereas this is just the sheer outcome of trying to figure out historically contingent encounters. And I think that that's a very different model for where this occurs, and it requires a lot more care thinking about an encounter with a world that might not be harmonious with yours, um, but then figuring out how to coexist in it, which is a harder project. I picked up In the Dust of This Planet by Eugene Thacker early on and kind of looked at like the philosophy of horror and the horror of philosophy and looking at how really philosophy is about the horror of living in the world. And I went back and read through that first book in the middle of the lockdown and went like, this is the book. Like, this is the book that explains it all. Kind of, you have those moments. And one of the things is that he's getting very much at what you're saying is that there's a world like without us and that the horror of facing this world 
that can't be anthropocentrized in any way. And I think that's one of the things that this pandemic has done in part is put that world, the world that isn't about us at all, right there. And uh, whether you cope with that or not is a big piece of how you've weathered this pandemic. I don't disagree with that. You know, I sort of want to both hold on to Thacker's language, the world without us is a good one. I also really like the term that comes from, I think, at the book Afterlife that he wrote, which is blasphemous life to understand forms of life that should never exist, right? It also sometimes appears in humanitarian discourse. Like I, I both want to hold on to that kind of as a background through which contingency then kind of plays a really important role in how things materialize. And that's always been a kind of important category in political thought for me. But then I also hear you about there's a certain sense of persistence that you're also describing in relationship to that text. And I think there's something in some of these practices that people have latched onto that is interesting that, you know, there's still kind of a question when you're in a relationship with a non-human animal, because it's just different than other kinds of relationships that can be established and normalized that draw people's curiosity. It's part of what makes them a subject of fascination, not just that there are cute cat photos or whatever. And it's interesting against that broader world without us point, because sometimes when I, I read Thacker, and this is kind of a mild criticism of people in that genre, there's a sort of mopiness about it that I'm not sure I totally feel all the time in response to the articulation of a world without us. And there's not a human primacy and, you know, the, the Nietzsche and most horrible thought or whatever it is. There's still value in that kind of dog peddling, or at least a possibility for value relative to just kind of giving up. And that's kind of also what I think is fascinating here that there, there is some sort of thriving and an interest and drive revitalized almost a certain model of humanitarianism, but paradoxically done it through non-humans, which is not at all who humanitarianism is supposed to be serving. That is a signifying something to us about desires that people have that I think is important to take note of. I agree. Books are funny things. They become a, a funny thing that is like a forensic object at some point. And when you, you've often been working on your book for a long time, you're trying not to write the next book in that book. There's kind of challenges where you identify where you go next. What kind of doors has this book opened for you? I think the next book project is going to probably be back on the subject of genocide again. I thought you were going to say bird strikes. And it's the acknowledgments, I note that there was kind of a question as to whether or not I was going to write a book that was about not the concepts of genocide, but some of the materials that were involved there. But instead, I opted to write this because my partner said that, you know, it would be better to pay attention to this because it was a different kind of interest. So it was a good moment where she oriented me and should deserve all the credit for the existence of this book, actually 100% based off a, a conversation about thriving and wellness and other things like that that were involved that were well attuned to the COVID pandemic, although that happened before COVID. But it, it actually has led to a lot of interesting questions I have about international studies, and international relations, which is sort of if we have disciplinary homes, and I work in an interdisciplinary department where I've come from, certainly, there is a shocking lack of attention to the question of non-human animals in international studies. And the bird strike thing that you just alluded to is one example of that. The problem of birds colliding with planes has occurred since aviation began, but it has only become a problem of security and commercial security and national security, and even international security in the past few decades. And so trying to figure out some of the ways that specific non-human animals have shaped different types of international practice is also something I've been thinking about beyond they exist over here in the domain of wildlife and nature and things that must be protected or can be commercially used in the following ways. And there's some agreement on that. You know, there's been some wonderful burgeoning work in the study of armed conflict that have shown how transformative non-human animals have been in that context like Stephen Hobden and other people like that that have, have written in that area. But I, I think it's much more extensive. There was a wonderful review of international studies, special issue that had some great pieces by yourself and others like Rafi Watt. 
and you know, folks that were involved in thinking along those lines. We definitely find ourselves in a space that's populated by things that always remain unsaid. I think working on trees was one of the reasons moving into whatever next books we all have in us. It's it's funny the way you're pushed sometimes by things you wouldn't suspect. And I love me a good metaphor. And sometimes these ways of thinking about the world metaphorically through different kinds of actants or critters or whatever can, I think, be a part of our imagination, right? That helps us out. I'm on board with that. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. It was awesome hanging out. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This has been a University of Minnesota Press production. The book Non-Human Humanitarians, Animal Interventions in Global Politics is available from University of Minnesota Press. Thank you for listening.